This is Radio Free America coming to you minutes before the Trump comes down. And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Stroud and Gary K. Wolf on the dilapidated, terrified, demoralized Coot Street Podcast. I don't know why you say demoralized. We've been talking about dystopias for, 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 for years on this podcast dystopian movies are the most popular movies out there i spent my life reading dystopian fiction now it's just time to give it a whirl i figure <laughs> well, it's now dystopias are us is it well i gave uh, here's here's the odd thing I'm, uh obviously i suspect you've been asked this but I, I i get cast in this role as science fiction expert i was sent i was invited down to the university of alabama at huntsville last week um to give a couple of lectures. And of course, I was getting questions about, has science fiction seen anything like this? And um, yes, it has, obviously. I mean, you could, you, you could go all the way back to 1984, I suppose. I, I was talking about Octavia Butler's second Parable novel, Parable of the Talents. Everybody knows Parable of the Sowers, but Parable of the Talents is the really scary one. Um, I don't know if I mentioned this earlier on the podcast. I dug up this old John Sladek story from um, from an anthology edited by Tom Dish called Bad Moon Rising, named after Credence Clearwater. And the title of the Sladex story was The Great Wall of Mexico. <laughs> and it's about an extremely goofy president who decides he's going to build a wall to keep Mexicans out. This is 1973, I think. Yeah, but see, you're touching on actually a really important, if depressing thought, which is, can you think of any political science fiction treatment of this sort of an event that is not a satire? Well, let me think. Would you count 1984 as a satire? I, I don't know. So. Maybe, maybe, yeah. It's a satire on communism to some extent. Um, when you look at other, uh, the idea of a pop star becoming president goes back to that 1960s British movie Privilege. Mm -hmm. um, which was meant to be a, a satire on pipe, pop iconography on somebody who's just famous for being famous, becoming ruler of the world. So has anybody dealt with it as anything other than satire or an awful warning? Uh, I don't think so. I can't, I can't. Well, maybe the Turner Diaries back in the 70s, the white yeah. supremacist dystopia. But serious science fiction, um, I don't know that anybody quite hit this on the head the way that uh, the way that it turned out well for all that you know the 300 million people are about to start living in a in the world of a how would i put it i'm just trying to think because uh yeah you're about to start living in a science fictional dystopian experiment you know um mm -hmm. let me ask ask you this People talk around the idea of political science fiction. People mess about with it without really talking about it in any depth. If you think about it seriously for a minute, how many people do you think, honestly, um, as you know, how many occasions can you think where science fiction, fantasy, genre fiction has played an actual political role in the world in expressing views and thoughts? I have one example I can think of particularly, and that would be the Strugatskis in Russia. Uh, Charles used to talk ah. quite quite often about how science fiction in Russia in the 
50s, 60s, 70s, whatever, was a way to e- explore and discuss unapproved thoughts in a way that didn't get you basically locked up for the rest of your life. Now, in all, in all fairness, you know, we're talking about a four years election cycle. We're not talking about a dictatorship and the madness of, of Soviet huh. Russia. We, we hope we're talking about a four year election cycle. <laughs> well, you know, <laughs> it's unlikely they're going to get a constitutional amendment in. So I think you're probably safe there. But okay, you know, I think we might. Realistically, it is actually, is this turn of events an opportunity for science fiction to be usefully political? I would think so. And when you mention the example of the Sugatskis, a couple of others come to mind, not in the sense of shaping immediate political policy. But for example, I've been told uh, by by friends and fellow scholars in, in, in Eastern Europe that Lim's stories in the 60, 50s and 60s and 70s didn't really directly satirize the, the, the government, but they, they made the bureaucracy such kind of a, a, a parodic laughingstock that, that to some extent he, he, created a, he helped create a, a state of mind in which governmental structures were parodied. Even Kafka did that to some extent. So I think, I think they can shift attitudes. Whether they can shift attitudes toward policy, I don't know at all. The most famous example of American science fiction, probably directly in response to a political movement was Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, Mm -hmm. which was explicitly a response to McCarthy and the House on American Activities Committee, and which Bradbury said many times, you know, nobody writing mainstream fiction in 1953 could have gotten away with what I got away with. But the fact is, most of the people reading it at the time weren't reading McCarthyism into it. They weren't reading Hueck into it. They were reading it as a, a, a parable about censorship, which it also is. So did it have any effect? Did it help bring down Joe McCarthy or eliminate QAC? It had no effect whatsoever, as far as I can tell. I must admit, I've often felt that the arts, as much as I value them, and as much as I see value in them contributing to the way members of a culture feel about what's happening and on how they exchange thoughts and ideas about Mm -hmm. what's happening in their world, that they do not directly influence in a meaningful way anything that's physically happening in the world. And I think very little science fiction is intended to do that. I mean, there's been a lot of science fiction, and we've talked about the new space opera, and you've edited books about the new space opera, which is decidedly more leftist in orientation than than traditional space opera was. But that orientation has to do with what the world might look like 200 years from now. Uh, Possibly greater Brazil will emerge as a a power. Possibly, uh, you know, some of the uh, oceanic, Nations will, but that none of that has to do with immediate policy. That's imagining what the world might be like, and it's talking about governmental structures in the abstract. I mean, for heaven's sake, Stan Robinson, who is possibly our certainly most successful, if not our best, political science fiction writer, devoted the middle volume of the Mars trilogy to a debate over constitutions, uh, a debate over how our government should be formed, and it was an intelligent debate. It was a long debate for the middle novel of the trilogy. But nevertheless, I don't think it had any political impact at all. He made a passionate plea in the uh, Science in the Capital trilogy for an enlightened science policy. Uh, Did we get one? Not really. We got a more enlightened one under Obama, but now it's moving south again with climate change denial. Fair enough. I mean, I, I, I do think, though, that one of the values in having 
a political science fiction or fantasy or genre fiction or whatever you want to call the um, mm. the spectrum of fiction that we talk about on on this podcast and that our friends are engaged in is that it gives an outlet for expression a real a relief of tension and a means of communication. I can think of a number of creators in our field, whether they be you know, primary, say, political writers like Stan Robinson, as you say, who is mm. pro- possibly the best utopian writer working today in any genre. Yes. Uh, or whether you're talking about people who are actually members of at-risk parts of our community, wherever you see them. You know, they ha- you know, they get to gain something from a literature that is open to the exploration of ideas contrary to the current prevailing conditions that may um, empower them and make them feel more valued. I think you're exactly right, and I think that's the value of fiction probably and science fiction in, in particular, because science fiction, frankly, is not and has never been a popular enough literature to influence more than its readers, which is a, a, a small subset of the fiction readers in general. But the idea, especially in, in times of distress, which I expect we are entering into a long one of, um, it can give people a feeling of dignity. It can give people, people a feeling of of reclaiming some part of the territory for themselves. I even think that um, I'm, I, all, all, the, all the kind of revisioning of Lovecraft that's been going on uh, is, is is partly that. It's partly saying, look, uh, a, a woman character or a gay character or a black character can claim some dignity in a universe that looks a lot like the Lovecraft universe that more or less erases and undermines um, the, the, the more despicable parts of Lovecraft's worldview. And I think that's true in general. And I think we see that in most of the science fiction that's being published today. One of the things I noticed to um, to embarrass you uh, uh, again is the latest Bridging Infinity yep. uh, anthology, which apart from the fact that there are women, women writers represented, I don't know, is it more than half women writers in the book? I'd have to go look it up, Gary. Truthfully, I didn't add them up. But the, but the thing I the thing I noticed about it is that no matter who wrote the stories, uh, people of color, women, outsiders, gay people were major characters in these stories. Yeah. And the more fiction does that as a matter of course, and even writers who are politically more conservative probably than you and I are, are making an effort to give people that sense of dignity, the sense that you know you belong in this fiction. Uh, you you know there there are people from Thailand, people from India. Um, uh, the, the people from Pakistan, Usman Malik, all of whom have a stake in this. And I think one of the things you can do in science fiction, more than more than realistic fiction, is to portray a possible life. The, the there's there's a lot of debate going on now. Not a lot of debate. A lot of discussion going on in academic circles about post-colonial science fiction. And there's a lot of what you can lump in as post-colonial. It could be Usman Malik, it could be Nettie Okorafor, it could be Karen Lord, Toby Buckle, the, the, the list goes on and on and on. Um, the reason science fiction, I think, can be more valuable for readers and writers in that quote-unquote post-colonial world is that, by and large, the realistic fiction tends to be, frankly, a little bit depressing. Yeah. It tends to be talking about how unfortunate our circumstances are and how miserable life can be and how unfair things are and, and the struggles of, of, of being accepted. Um, and some of that is absolutely brilliant fiction. And don't, don't get me wrong. I mean, a, a lot of it is absolutely brilliant fiction. Uh, Edwidge Donnacott is a brilliant writer. 
But the idea of portraying a world in which, you know, you can be part of that world instead of struggling to find an identity yeah. is something that science fiction, I think, or fantasy does better than other kinds of fiction. I think it does. I mean, there are all kinds of spaces for science fiction and fantasy to work in that allow it to do exactly that. And for a lot of that, I mean, one of the things that's interesting is that how much of the, how much politics is in the fiction we read when we don't think about it being there. You know, mm -hmm. there's, I mean, there's a lot of, obviously, um, racial politics these days, gender politics, but you know, the uh, economic politics, if you like, which is, which, which exists mm -hmm. throughout all of science fiction, even when we're not overtly talking about it, you know. It's it's one of those things that you have to value about the field, even when you're not overtly aware of it. Because one of the, I mean, I think one of the things that I'm aware of is that you can't make something like politics, like eating cereal, you know, like, or, or or something you have to do, you know, something that's good for you. No, you make it entertaining, you make it interesting, you make it engaging, and you have a point. You know, that's what the points are, you know, with the stories in engineering and bridging infinity. And that's what there's, you know, the point is in a lot of science fiction. I mean, I look at something like, say, the story in bridging infinity that was written by Karen Lord and Tobias Buckle. Uh -huh. You know, which is very much, a, you know, a, as you say, it's, it's, it's a colonial piece of science fiction. It's a, a piece of fiction about an outsider group being able to influence politics, being able to influence the world around them. Those kind of stories are, are powerful and worthwhile. You know, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm pretty happy with this. No, I, I, it's, it's, a, it's a very uh, important anthology, I think. Maybe in, in the sense we're talking about right now, right now, it might be the most important of these anthologies, even though its ostensible focus is uh, giant engineering products. But the key to the Karen Lord and, and, and Toby Buckle story is, you're right, it, it, first of all, it, it deals with the idea that art can influence uh, civilization in this case, not just the world. And in this particular kind, it's an outsider form of art. It's Calypso. Yeah. It's a kind of island music that suddenly becomes uh, a, a galactic force over a period of centuries. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's a weird kind of empowerment that probably is available only in fantastic literature of one sort or another. Yeah. I have to say as well, I mean, completely sort of being facile about it, mm -hmm. um, Bridging Infinity is just about the prettiest book I've ever done. I've been associated with. It's lovely. Um, it, it's lovely. It's a lovely cover. I don't know if you've seen the physical book yet. I don't have the physical book. I mean, I've, the cover is on my arc. Uh, yeah. I, I, I should get you. You have an arc or an e-arc? An e-arc. Okay. I, I, I should get you a, a print copy of this because they've done a beautiful, beautiful job of it, actually. It's quite surprising. Um, and, you know, look. You look through it, and yes, it, it does represent different points of view. Yes, it is interesting to see those those, those points of view engaged, um, and probably, yeah. if anything, is encouraging is happening within science fiction. And if you like, what actually would have thrown me about the fate of the election that we just saw in the United States is that so many of the things that our well, my group, your group, our group together mm -hmm. uh, would see as being important are backgrounded into it. I mean, the assumption was, frankly, that the left would win the the, the most recent. Um, American election, because that's the world we live in. Of course, that's the bubble we live in, uh -huh. I suppose. You know, there is another version of Bridging Infinity that is completely different. That takes the, the core idea. I mean, the core idea of Bridging Infinity really has nothing to do with mm -hmm. politics and equality, and, ever, and not even so much uh, to do with giant machines as it has to do with that idea of, you know, the engineering sublime, you know, that idea yeah. of awe, of response to something 
that is almost spiritual at some level. And there's an element of that in the book. But you can, see, you can see the flip of it, and I don't want to characterize it with anything else that exists in our field right now, because I feel like the risk there is you're going to then assign political slant to people that doesn't belong to them. But you can see a more conservative, a more right-wing, a more militaristic view of it. You know, um, a less, to my mind, humane view of things. You can see a sad puppy version of, or Mm. a a rabid puppy version of it. And I have to say... Oh, I suspect you. Don't you just feel like you just lived through losing the rabid puppy debate? Uh, Yeah, I do. Absolutely. Like, it it, it feels like they won. But, you know, there's a sense in which... uh, it, it might at some point become almost exhilarating to think you're part of the resistance. I mean, what if what if the science fiction political world were completely turned upside down like the American government may have been turned upside down and the rabid puppies and the sad puppies were actually running the Hugo Awards? Wouldn't it feel weirdly exhilarating to be part of the resistance? <laughs> I mean, I've never... Uh, you know what? Part of, part, of, part of me goes, sure. Part of me goes... We've been recording, we've recorded like nearly 290 episodes of this this podcast. Or whatever uh-huh. it is. That may be the most entitled thing we've ever said. Only because only someone who who was in the a more protected group in an at-risk society could possibly see um, that kind of thing as being <laughs> exhilarating and challenging rather than terrifying. I think for... People who are genuinely at risk, it's just simply terrifying. And I don't, I know you don't mean oh, it no, no, no. that way, but you know. I, no, uh, I did not mean that that would be some, that, that the sad puppies taking over would not be exhilarating. I'm saying, I'm, I'm, tr- I'm trying to figure out a position to be in ideologically in what the United States might look like, which I should remind everybody, nobody has any idea. There are no principles involved now at all. But you're absolutely right. Part of what, uh, part of what is in the back of my mind is, is, is the white male privilege then? You know, I'm probably going to be okay. Uh, there's nothing they could round me up for that I'm aware of. And and you're in the same situation. A lot of our friends are in the same situation. It doesn't make it any easier to live in a dystopia if you're... Everybody wants to be Jennifer Lawrence and nobody wants to be... Uh, uh, who, who, who was the... Oh, who's the actor who played... Sutherland. was in MASH. Nobody wants to be Donald Sutherland. Everybody wants to be Jennifer Lawrence. And in a sense, um, that's the way dystopians work. The, the dystopian stories deal with, you know, getting things back. I don't know if we're there yet or not, but um, I mean, I, I don't know if there's anything to be called a resistance movement. I don't know if there are enough principles involved in this new American government to fight against. I mean, it seems to me to just be complete chaos. Um, but the, you're absolutely right. The privilege and the privilege which uh, is afforded a lot of science fiction readers is not going to be destroyed by this. But there are people who are seriously at risk, who are good friends of ours, who are family members in some cases. And, and that's what's terrifying. It is terrifying. Well, we are a little, and we'll, we'll maybe bring it back and even move on, but I think what we're acknowledging, having spent half an episode or whatever it is of the podcast talking about an election and how it impacts on things, isn't that we've got any idea how ultimately it will impact, even though the ideological or ideological consistency of you know, religious extremism, on a, you know, Christian religious extremism, combined with 
um, a really sort of anti-establishmentarianism, an anti-establishmentarianist uh, conservatism mm. is lies at the core of what's happening. You're going to see institutions torn down. Um, you're going to see yeah. institutions that you never believed could have been at, you know, at risk. At risk. I mean, as an outsider looking into America, as someone who has been fed the myth of America for his entire lifetime, who has seen the core institutions of American government cast in almost sanctified ways, you know, you see movies where Jimmy Stewart goes to Congress and filibusters, you know, you, yeah. see, you see movies about uh, the American judicial system and the um, importance, the critical nature of the Supreme Court. To see those kind of things fundamentally called into question, and I don't even mean anything as simple as putting a more or less conservative justice on the Supreme Court, but calling the very existence of the Supreme Court into uh, into uh, question. Uh, talking about yeah. fundamentally undermining the First Amendment, which is critical to everything in the United States. To, to, talk, to talk about impinging on the freedom of speech and freedom of the press. These are unimaginable things in terms of the mythology of America, really. They almost are, in, in any real sense. So, so that's shocking. So, I mean, some of this episode, for anybody who's listening to this who is on the conservative side of politics, if you listen to, to this podcast, my guess is that on many issues you nonetheless fall within a similar spectrum that we do. Uh, I may be wrong, but I, I guess that you do. And if you feel like you're about to be thrown from our podcast because, you know, we're coming from Radio Free America. I've, I'm going to reassure you and say no. We will get back to talking about science fiction, fantasy, and horror as we have for the last six or seven years. That I think you can rely on with some confidence because that's where we are. But every now and again, this will no, no doubt creep in. Yeah, yeah. There, I, I, would, I would venture to say that there are relatively few listeners of our podcast who would uh, who would deny the reality of climate change, for example. And yet that denial is likely to be the policy of whatever remains of the environment, Environmental Protection Agency. But to go back to how this relates to science fiction, and the one thing that um, I, I'm not trying to put a positive spin on anything, but science fiction historically deals with radical change. It deals with a world substantially different from what you thought the world was going to be. That whole, the whole range of dystopian uh, novels and, 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 and movies reflects that. So to some extent, you could argue that science fiction readers or people who are familiar with or imbued with science fiction might be better equipped to deal with the idea of radical change because they've seen many alternatives and they've seen how bad things can get. I mean, we've seen really in, um, in, in, in not any kind of realistic fiction because there isn't any, uh, We've seen what global nuclear war could look like. Uh, we've seen what dictatorships, religious dictatorships in America uh, could look like. We could, we, we've seen what uh, climate disasters can look like. Science fiction has showed us all the things, sometimes in the, means, in, in the manner of awful warnings, but it showed us about the worst that can happen. Uh, and it would be difficult, again, I go back to some writers like Octavia Butler, it would be difficult to get worse than what they portrayed. It's not impossible. Yeah. But my point is, I think as science fiction readers, we ought to be able better to cope with radical change. But to be honest, right now, it doesn't feel that way. Well, no. And I mean, you know, look, 
as we sit here and we, we you know we, we witness you know the death of the American project and and you know the, the end of the republic as we see you know, uh, you know American science fiction writers uh, agitating for California to secede from the Union as we uh, have believe it or not mm-hmm. I've seen that uh, let us turn our eyes to another failing American institution how was world fantasy Gary world fantasy okay on the ground going to the uh Sessions, going back to that same hotel in Columbus, having dinner with friends, uh, watching the Cubs begin to lose the World Series, um, which is another story I want to mention in a minute. But uh, it felt like a regular World Fantasy Convention. I know that there were meetings going on behind the scenes. I know the book room was not doing well in terms of selling books anyway. Uh, And I know that some of the sessions were uh, odd. But as far the ones I was on, and I was on four of them and attended a couple of others, <clears throat> were well attended, and the uh, response of the people was pretty well, so but pretty good. So I think that by and large, uh, the program turned out to be more interesting and more diverse than it had originally seemed. Probably not as interesting and diverse as it should have been, uh, but there were last minute uh, changes there. I thought that the banquet was rather sparsely attended compared to world past world fantasy banquets. Um, but, uh, I, you know, it, 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 there are two ways of looking at these things. There are two ways of looking at, um, Worldcon because Worldcon can be absolutely, yeah. uh, tainted in all sorts of ways by the sad puppies and the rabid puppies and what they've done behind the scenes. But as you noticed in Kansas city, the Worldcon felt like a Worldcon, And I think the same thing can be said about world fantasy. I think world fantasy's future is, a little bit shaky because of um, the really lack of leadership at the top right now. And I think some of this has to do with the loss of David Hardwell. But I, I on th- the other hand... I, I don't entirely agree with you. I, I think it's it's. Wor- I think from the outside, it looks worse than you're portraying it. I'm glad that it was enjoyable on oh. the ground. But here's the way uh-huh. I, I see it, and you can tell me if you think that I'm wrong. Across a three-year period of time, the attendance level of World Fantasy has dropped by 40%. Yes. That's fairly concerning. It took a somewhat over-the-top and almost publicly, publicly humiliating attempt to um, redress the uh, original draft program that was released. Yes. It, it, I kind of feel like... World fantasy across a five-year period of time has gone from being a major convention in our field that was occasionally controversial for whatever reasons to being one that's kind of at risk now. Now, I I, I talk to a lot of people who refer to it as being on notice. You know, I will go to this one, I will go to that one, and then we'll see exactly what's happening with it. I think that may be true. Uh... And I, but but that that gets into the more general question of who goes to what conventions for what reasons. I mean, for several years. And, and by the way, uh, my comment about Hartwell is, is is partly true. Everybody feels lost there, and everybody feels at sea. But obviously, before David died, there were problems last year with the uh, uh, harassment policy and so forth. So there've been growing problems, and I, I think that's generally an issue. And before that, even World Fantasy, which at one time when I first started going to them was known as the professional convention, the convention that writers and editors have to go to to talk to agents and publishers. That reputation seems to have disappeared over the last four or five years consistently. Um, so all those things are, are working against it as a professional convention. 
Um, but not everybody is uh, a professional in the field. And the people I were, uh, most of the people I talked to there seemed to be having a good time. But you're right. It could have been a large regional convention for all it meant to people's careers. I've got to say, I mean, if you are a writer, an editor, a critic, a publisher, whatever else, I don't think there are any professional conventions anymore. I think over the last half decade, they've all, or more, they've all disappeared. Uh, you're probably right. I mean, there's uh, there was some, uh, you know, publishers' parties, which used to be the big item you'd go to. Either they're not being offered at all, or they're being offered in such overcrowded venues that you don't want to go to them. Uh, so to some extent, that's true. Um, I didn't see anybody uh, hustling around, you know, saying I've got to have lunch with my agent today, so forth. I talked to some publishers, I talked to some uh, editors who were there, and nobody seemed to be swamped with business. So it could be that the convention has simply reverted to what it once was, which is essentially a fan organization. Remember, things like World Fantasy only became professional conventions over a period of years. Uh, before that, I'm sure there was a time when Worldcon was the professional convention because it was the only national convention. See, I've got to say that from um, my perspective, if World Fantasy either reverts or converts to being a, if you like, a fan-only convention, if the professional mm -hmm. element goes, I can't justify going to it anymore. Um, but you're going to it largely for professional reasons. I go for, um, for two reasons. I'm going, Obviously, I've got a, a group of dear friends who I only see there, people who I've met there originally, exactly. and who I will miss mm -hmm. bitterly if, if I you know, stop going to conventions or World Fantasies. But on the other hand, I mean, the, the business side of it was always critical. I mean, I, I have bought a membership to San Antonio. I am vacillating enormously as to whether I will actually use it or whether I'll sell it. Um, uh -huh. There was a moment this week when I thought, well, maybe I just won't go back to the United States for th four years. Um, I could understand that. Particularly, and, and actually, that's a much less threatening kind of a thing to say. I'm not saying it because it would be silly. But, you know, I'm going to go to, to uh, Finland next year anyway. And I was mm -hmm. going to go to Worldcon in 2018, uh, World Fantasy in 2018. But Worldcon 2019 is likely to be in Dublin, Ireland. I'm not going to go there. And 2020, Worldcon is likely to be in New Zealand, so I'm going to go there. Right? Obviously. So the truth is that there's only one year in those four where I was definitely going to come to the States anyway. So it becomes right. kind of um, a grandstanding of me to say that you know, I'm not going to go there. But it, it did cross my mind. Um, okay. It concer what concerns me as much as anything about the, the vitality of world fantasy, which I value highly because I've had wonderful experiences there. I've enjoyed it as a convention. What concerns me is that First of all, membership is way down. That is a very, yes. very worrying thing. People are not talking about it in positive ways. Even after this most recent convention, they're not talking about it positively. Even though next year's guest list is phenomenal, really, people are not talking uh -huh. about it particularly positively, and that's something that the convention must be concerned about. Uh, also now for two years running, it sounds as though the dealer's room, which is part of the... But the financial and the social engine of the convention, yes. you know, um, it, it seems to be f you know, fundamentally at risk. Last year, the dealers were saying they had had a terrible convention. And I understand yeah. it's not been much better this time out. Possibly one of the more perplexing things, though, and this also speaks to the 
overall reputation of the convention at the moment, which I don't think is in a terminal tailspin, but is going to need some considerable addressing, is that I didn't see anybody really talking about the results much. Uh, that concerns me possibly more than anything, because to some extent, uh, there were there, there were many deserved nominees and deserved winners. But there was, again, on the ground, other than the people I talked to who were nominees, who were obviously excited for very good and defensible reasons, people were not talking about that much. People were not talking a lot about it after the awards ceremony. Uh, the World Fantasy Awards seemed to get a lot of attention early on when the Life Achievement Awards are announced. Um, Individual categories, uh, I did not hear a lot of buzz beyond, as I said, the, the people I knew who'd been nominated. So to some extent, I don't know, do you think that means that there's some uh, some sheen is, is, is disappearing from the award itself? Yes. At the very moment when we're beginning to replace the Howie with something which is still unknown? Well, I think the first thing is that the whole act of replacing the Howie has tarnished the award. It's tarnished it with those people who feel the Howie shouldn't be replaced, and it's tarnished it with the people who think it should be replaced. The fact that there was not an award to hand out this year probably didn't help. The way the whole thing's been handled publicly probably didn't help. The results themselves are fine. You know, I mean, there were were terrific nominees. There were great winners. Any given year, you're going to turn around and say, I might have chosen differently because that's the readers (laughs) slash you know, person that I am, and that's my experience. But when you look at it from the perspective of the field at large, I mean, there are some terrific winners. I mean, just quickly, I mean, our congratulations without going into it too much to John O'Neill from Blackgate for winning the Special Award Professional, Steve Jones for uh-huh. The Art of Horror for Professional, Galen Dara for winning Best Artist, uh, CSE Cooney for uh, winning Best Collection for Bone Swans. And let's just say, up against mm-hmm. a pretty damn stellar array of collections, you know, with books from Lena Crone and VH Leslie and Kelly Link and James oh, Morrow yeah. and Mary Rickard. And James Morrow. Yeah. And our hat off, a definite, you know, doffing of the hat to Sylvia Moreno Garcia and Paul, Paul Styles for She Walks in Shadows winning Best Anthology. The ever expressive and wonderful Alyssa Wong for winning for Hungry Daughters of Starving Mothers, Kelly Barnhill for winning for The Unlicensed Magician, and Anna Smale for winning for The Chimes for Best Novel. Uh, a, a strong mm-hmm. slate, a, strain, a strong batch of nominees. But it, you know, it, it would be nice if the convention, the organization was able to look at the reputation of the awards and help redress what's happening. Now, I have to say, in fairness, whether or not they did it well enough this year, I feel like there is a commitment to do that. When I The, the, the bit of exposure, I mean, I'd have had more if I'd been at the convention, uh-huh. but the bit of exposure I've had talking to people involved, I feel most of them are concerned and are trying to redress the situation with the convention. I don't know to what extent, you know, how well progressed that is because I'm not involved in those conversations. So I, just, I literally don't know. But I'm aware that there is well, concern you- and awareness, which is at least a step in the right direction. I think there are two questions. One is the World Fantasy Awards as a convention, which if there were no awards at all, people would still like to see their friends and be together in a nice gathering sometime in the fall. The awards have always had the advantage of being a partially juried award, which means that they're not predictable and they're not easily gamed uh, in, in the way possibly the Hugos have become. 
So you, so you are going to get new writers. You're going to, you're going to get writers like C.S.E. Cooney, for example, who might not have that high a profile. It can bring that profile up a bit. And I think it did that with several of the winners this year. Uh, whether it actually has any effect on the reputation of these authors depends to some extent on the impact the overall World Fantasy Award itself has. Um, there seemed to be, to me, there seemed to be a time when World Fantasy Awards uh, were creating reputations. I think to some extent Jeff Ford's reputation grew as he accumulated more World Fantasy Awards. Mary Rickards' uh, Mary Rickards' reputation. Yeah, so, so it, it really was an important way of discovering writers. One of the problems that uh, you have with a juried award or a partially juried award is one that I ran into years ago in, in, in running the Crawford Award. You're going to run out of juries after a while. Sure. Uh, you're, going to, you're, you're going to be, in, in, in trying to represent, as they do, and I think very rightly, trying to represent this uh, by profession and by nationality. They want one international judge. They want a bookseller judge. They want an editor judge. They want an, I, I don't know if an academic is required or not, but they, they, you, you've got a very eclectic group of judges, but as year after year goes on without trying to repeat any judges, um, you start wondering, you know, uh, who, who's going to be the judge next year? Plus the fact that a lot of people, uh, myself included, having been, and you've, you've done this too, having been through the experience of reading all that stuff, nobody wants to be a judge of these things twice that I'm aware of. I've it's volunteered. A huge amount. No, no, I've volunteered. You did? I, I don't know if I would again. Uh, I would do it. I think that it's an interesting thing to do. I made wonderful, a couple, you know, some wonderful uh, friends out of it. I made you know, relation, uh, relationships that persist because of it, doing it. And also, I think well, same here. It, also, I think it's 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 a service to community, a little bit. You know, we are part of the science fiction, fantasy, and horror community, and doing something like that feels like you are a little bit, just a little bit, giving back. And I think that's valuable. I suppose that's true. Uh, and and I've, I've persuaded people to be judges on the, of the Crawford Order in the same, on the same basis. So that, but the point I'm making is that you still have to recruit. Yeah, there, there, there's no overriding organization, really. And yet, World Fantasy has to recruit a new sponsor every year. Frequently, people who have never organized a convention, like they have to recruit new judges every year. They have to deal with, with, with artists, with, with mechanics of running a convention year after year. And without a central organization, it becomes more and more difficult to do that. Uh, and I think that that may be taking its toll at some point. Maybe I, I really don't know how the judges are selected. All I know is I got an email from actually David Hartwell uh, saying, would you be a judge? And I assume you got something similar. So and I know other friends. Yeah, so, so you just, gee, it, you're, you're flattered to be asked. Um and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not criticizing any of the judges. I don't remember who this year's judges were. By and large, I think the judges have done a good job of staying away from obvious popular choices, of looking at at least innovative, uh, valuable work. And I don't think that the World Fantasy Awards needs to be embarrassed by any of the awards it's given out in, in the last several years. So from that perspective, it's still functioning. Yeah. Uh, but it's become, it seems to be finding it harder and harder to function, and that's what worries me. Let me ask you this. Um, I am in the endgame moments of compiling my year's best for next year, and the best science fiction and fantasy of the mm -hmm. year, volume 11, which will come out next April from Solaris. 
and I'm aware that uh, there's a handful of writers who are being the most prolific and interesting in 2016. You will see them all over the pages of all of the year's best next year, I'm confident. Probably most notably Rich Larson, is the name you'll have heard of. But, I mean, he's been enormously prolific. He's probably had about 14 original stories out in Analog, in FNSF, in Asimov's, in Clark's World, in Lightspeed, everywhere. The thought I had while I was reading, though, over the last week or so was, do you feel that we have a reasonable expectation for newness in the field every year? There is a lot of talk when you, I mean, we've started to talk about the year review a little bit, and we will do more in the coming uh-huh. weeks, I know. And I know that Locus Recommended Reading has been compiled in the background. Somewhere in the argument, the discussion, the assessment of the year as we summon it up, we, we, we look for major books, we look for major stories, we look for major writers, and somewhere in there uh-huh. we look for novelty, newness. What was the fresh, big, new thing we could talk about? You know, along came the new space opera, the new weird, along came this, along yeah. came that, right? Except, is it a false and unreasonable construct to expect a lot of novelty in a year, even though newness is what science fiction is all about? Or Well, yes, it is. Go ahead, but I'll finish the question. No, no, no. I mean, that, I mean that, that's basically the question I have. It doesn't need much more elaboration. I guess I'm thinking this because, frankly, it feels like a pretty ordinary year, although that we all know that's a meaningless idea and da-da-da-da, but it feels like a pretty ordinary year. There's a whole batch of books I've got sitting on my Kindle that I am eager to get to read, which are 2017 books, but when I look at 2016, I kind of think, you know, Possibly the best science fiction novel I read in 2016 was a December 2015 title, uh, which, mm-hmm. was, which was The Thing Itself by Adam Roberts, mm-hmm. which, was a, which is a terrific, thoughtful, intelligent, smart, well-written book. Um, and certainly there were other books that followed that have been interesting, but there, there doesn't seem to have been a book that has set the field on fire really this year. Well, I had- there are a couple of questions with that. One is, uh, one is when you deal with writers uh, like Adam Roberts, who's been around for a long time now, and based on, I've only read a couple of novels, and I've not read the thing itself. Uh, but he's also a brilliant critic and historian of the field, a very smart guy, and you'd think he would be a major figure in the field by now. Uh, and at least in the States, that hasn't really happened. In terms of awards nominations, it hasn't really happened. That's so because, I don't know though, why. That's because, though... American publishing, whatever else, readers don't warm to British science fiction writers that way. Almost, all of, almost uniformly, without exception, any quote-unquote intelligent uh, or even leftist-leaning uh, British science fiction writer doesn't do that well in America. And it's, it, it seems to be a, a case with, with writers who once did well in America as well. Paul McCauley, for example, I don't know how Stephen Baxter is doing now. I'm sure his collaborations with Terry Pratchett are doing fine. But that's that's one problem. To get back to your original question, though, uh, do we expect something new like a new space opera or a new weird every year? That's unrealistic because those things tend to be labeled after two or three years of a, of a consistent uh, sort of set of stories that seem to fit into them. Do we have years in which a writer emerges? There is... One year with the World Fantasy Awards, the first time it was in Saratoga Springs, 
when I think Mary Rickard won both the best collection and best novella, two awards in the same year. That was a year in which Mary Rickard is a major new writer. Everybody knew it. The World Fantasy Awards validated it over a period of time. The same thing happened with Jeff Ford. I think there was a way in which individual writers, individual new voices could be recognized uh, if there was enough. And I can see this happening now uh, with, with writers we've seen emerging in the last couple of years. Sam Miller is one. Kelly Robson is another. You're talking, you mentioned a couple of yourself just now. So I think that does it necessarily be a requirement that we find a new movement every year? Not necessarily, but every year it seems to me there's some writer whose profile rises above the horizon enough to say, this is a major new writer. Okay. We had Kelly on the podcast. She seems, Kelly seems to be right at the point of going above the horizon. Sure. Okay, how about this? Does it only take a couple of major writers delivering, delivering new books in a given year that are somewhat disappointing to render the whole year appearing disappointing? Because I don't think we've had that debut that sets everything on fire. That doesn't happen every year, right? No. But it happens every no. few years, whether it's, a, whether it's a Perdido Street station in 2000 or whatever it might be. There'll be one that comes along every few years. That happens. Then, right. the other thing you get is you get, like, a major book delivered. I mean, as it happened, like, in 2000, when, or 2000, 2001, when I was a judge, we had... Uh, Tim Powers delivering Declare, one of his most important and best novels. The same uh -huh. year that we had China Mieville deliver Petite Street Station, and the same year that we had Sean Stewart deliver Galveston, right? And there are other books right. as well. But there was a, a small handful of obviously dominant books. Now, there are interesting books around. Nora Jemison's given the second of her series. Uh, people are talking right. very positively about Nissi Shaw's Everfair. Um, Obviously, Guy Gabriel Kay Charlie had Jane Charlie Jane's Andrews, All the Birds mm -hmm. in the Sky, uh, Guy Gabriel Kay's uh, Children of Earth and Sky, who, who, whose only disappointment is that it's another very, very fine novel from a very fine novelist. But on the other hand, I mean, frankly, uh, nobody got particularly excited about Tim Powers' new novel this year. Uh, Not really. Certainly, nobody's very excited about Connie Willis's new book. Uh, I don't think particularly, or not many people in my circle. Um, no, and... I, there, there, there does not seem to be a breakout book this year, and we're looking, uh, you know, we've been looking at first fantasy books at, uh, at the Crawford Award, and, and the sense I'm getting from everybody is that it's, it's an ordinary year. I mean, a bad year, it's hard to say a bad year, but is there anything, are there fireworks this year that people are all talking about? Not really. Yeah. There are novels that some people are talking about, uh, Charlie Jane's being one of them, uh, but by and large... Um, there isn't a sense that this is a, a radical revolutionary year. This is not a year in which we're going to see a, a China Mieville emerge or, uh, or, or a Jeff Ford or, a, um, or to go back to the 60s and Ursula Le Guin. That doesn't happen every year. It shouldn't happen every year. It can't happen every year. Should we care? And are we looking in the wrong place? I mean, should we, my, oh. Oh, okay, on the should we care point, right? On one hand, like, look, the, the annual construct is, a, is, is, we've admitted, a false one. There are, are as I've mm -hmm. said, very promising books. I mean, there's a Paul Farge book, uh, The Night Ocean, I think it's called, which you're reading. Yes, it is. Which sounds terrific. We've both just it's recently... brilliant. We've both mm -hmm. recently just got the new um, Kim Stanley Robinson novel, New York 2140, which is looks really, really interesting. I right. uh, just picked up for fun reading the new Carrie Vaughan novel, 
Martians Abroad, I think it is, which looks great. Um, mm-hmm. And a handful of other books. And there's others beyond that. You know, so it looks like already, like, even if it, even if by the end of next year, we don't think it was the strongest year, it looks really interesting right now. Even if all those, you know, looks really interesting. Uh, but the reason it makes me ask that we're looking partly in the wrong place, I mean, we have, at novella length at least, a couple of really significant books. And I think books have missed out yeah. on novel length. I mean, we didn't talk about um, uh, Matt Ruff's novel, uh, which... Lovecraft Country. Country, which we should. But we have Victor Laval's you know, you know, short novel or long novella or whatever it was, yeah. The Ballad of Black Tom, which is a major it's book, and I would expect to see on all the awards ballots next year. We've got Kids Jens- Johnson's The Dream Quest of Velvet Bow, which is in exactly the same space. I, I don't expect to see either of them collected in years best because they're quite long, but I expect to see them being talked about a lot and getting out there in the world. Um, I expect to see people talking about... Oh, one or two of the others that have come out. I mean, books like, I mean, impersonations by Walter John Williams, whatever else. There have been some well, lot- the ones that are coming out, yeah. The one, I, I, you're right. I think this, it, it feels to me like this has been a very good word, uh, year for novellas, partly because uh, one of the things that Tor.com has done is made novellas easily available to people who don't read magazines and uh, who may not, and there aren't really enough original anthologies to see a lot of them. Uh, so, so, yeah, I think, I think you're absolutely right to, the Victor Laval and the, and the Kids Johnson things seem to be of a piece. They're very different writers doing different things, but they're both playing Lovecraft. Early next year, we've got a major novella from uh, Ellen Clages. We've got one, uh, Benty Holm, from Nettie Okorafor. So it seems like the novella is just going on some kind of a, a, a ride right now. It seems to be just... Uh, uh, a, a kind of almost golden age for novellas, even though they've all been there before. I, th- I think but they it's, haven't it's, been that visible that immediately. Well, that's true. I, th- I think visibility is it because I mean, it's interesting that I'm compiling the recommended reading list, and it might surprise you that whilst there are a number of Tor.com novellas on it, they are not. Mm-hmm. They don't account for all of it. There are a number, you know, prob- more than half of the novellas on the list don't come from Tor.com. I'm sure they should. That, that should be the way it is. So they are coming but from magazines. The they are coming but, from other publishers. Um, mm-hmm. But Tor.com have at least in our circle of the world, and I guess that's one of those important you know, sort of caveats to put in place as well. Within our limited circle of the world, they've made quite a splash in the last eighteen months, and look set to for another year or two to come at least. Yeah, I think you're right. Uh, but it also revised it revived a kind of. Fiction. I mean, the, we've talked a little bit before about the novella length for science fiction. And what we're getting in some of these longer Tor.com novellas now, as I think I mentioned to you separately, are stories that are the length of half of an ace double, stories that are probably the length of a lot of ace originals, Andre Norton novels, uh, Ursula Le Guin's early novels like Cat's Eye were not more than maybe 10,000 words longer than these novellas. And, and I think to some extent, this liberates writers. Uh, this, this enables writers to explore ideas that really don't need to be developed at novel length. And one of the things that I've noticed in several of the novellas I've uh, read is that without this sort of um, entree for novellas, there might have been agents or editors saying, why didn't you turn this into a novel? And in almost every case, it shouldn't be a novel. The Dream Life of Velvet Bow shouldn't be a novel. The Victor Laval shouldn't be a novel. Ellen Clages, uh, Nettie Okorafor, none of these novellas should be novels. And I think making a market for novellas is a, 
is a good sign for for the future of the genre because you you I, I spent many years reading novels that should have been novellas, frankly, that didn't have enough going on in them to be novels. And I know there 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 are formal definitions about how many plot lines you have going and how much counterpointing you do and all the sort of thing that, that, that that's happened. But uh, you probably had the same experience, and I, I'm not going to name a title because it would be embarrassing to somebody if I did, where you have a... Um, okay, I will name a title because he's not alive anymore. Uh, you have a really good short story, which could have been a very good novella, in Flowers for Algernon. Uh, the novel is fine. The novel adds a couple of plot lines, it adds some backstory, it adds some relationships, it adds a bit of romance. Uh, it doesn't do anything to either increase or blunt the impact of the original story. And that's the kind of thing I mean where you have a, a, a novel which really shouldn't be a novel. But basically, the author is faced with, do I try to pump this up into a novel and get more money for it? Or do I sell it as is and keep the integrity of the narrative, but possibly have it disappear into a magazine? Yeah. I don't know. We'll see what happens. We're going to do some year in review uh, podcasts in the next, as I say, month, I think. Try and get some Christmas reading out there for, for people. You know, stuff mm-hmm. to put in, in stockings. You know, make sure you've picked up your copies of, you know, Ballad of Black Tom and Dream Quest of Velvet Bow and Children of Earth and Sky and got them into, you know, so, you know the reader you loves um, thing, you know, uh, Christmas stocking. You know, gone off and bought that copy of Bridging Infinity. Plug, plug, plug. Um, isn't that terrible? Uh-huh. I hate it. I have to get, get all pr now, Gary, when books come out. So I guess. I'm, I'm Good little, job when books come out. Maybe I should put a little video up on my, off my website, ho- holding up a copy and going, look, Bridging Infinity. Hey. You know, I can, uh, I was, okay, so as, as long as you're doing this, since it's not even my book, but I can, uh, I can mention that people should look out for Jerry Canavan's book called Octavia E. Butler in the series I'm editing for the University of Illinois Press. And, uh, equally uh, impressive, I think, is Paul Kincaid's forthcoming book on Ian M. Banks. Yeah, I, I have to uh, say, I, I, I'm not someone who looks forward to nonfiction books about science fiction, Gary, but I'm really looking forward to Paul's book on Ian Banks. Really looking forward to it. It's really good, and it's uh, uh, it's we, we we should actually plan a podcast around that because. Oh. Uh, first of all, obviously, one of the advantages that Paul had, and we've talked about this before, I've complained about it before. People like Paul and like well, Farrah Mendelssohn and Edward James and Neil Harrison, they all know each other. All the academic world and the fan world and the editorial world and the fiction world seems uh, mixed up. I mean, it, Paul was one of a group. He knew Ken McLeod, who was Banks's schoolboy chum, um, uh, and he, he knew Banks himself. And there's a sense of... Um, there's a sense of it's being a real book and not simply a kind of literary analysis. There's a human dimension to it. And I should mention there's a human dimension to uh, to Jerry Canavan's book, too, even though he don't think he had the opportunity to ever talk with Octavia. Mm. Well, I shall, look, I shall look forward to it very, very much. Uh, and there are books that we, you know, we, we will get, give attention to, I think. I mean, we have to work out some way to talk how we're going to talk about the Octavia Butler book. Now, is that out this year or in 2017? I... Don't know. Actually, I believe it's a 2017 title, but I have my copies of it already, so I should look and see. Yeah. Okay. Well, maybe on that note, we shall begin to wind up, um, because we're getting towards the end of an hour, having taken last week off. 
Well, just a quick um, mention for everybody. Gary and I both, by complete independent happenstance, have on Netflix ended up watching an Australian genre show. I wouldn't say science fiction necessarily, but genre show called Glitch. Yeah. Went to air in Australia in 2015, and I missed it completely. The Australian Broadcasting Commission, which is the national broadcaster, made it. And they are making the uh -huh. second season at the moment and have licensed it onto Netflix so people outside Australia can see it. And it's And terrific. Netflix, I believe, is, is it's terrific. And Netflix, I think, is helping fund the second season. It just showed up on Netflix a couple of weeks ago here. And it's, it's one of the things we haven't talked about. And we could spend part of another podcast talking about it. I've not seen the new film Arrival based on Ted Chang's story of your life. Uh, there are other new series, I guess, of various kinds coming on. But, uh, but, but Glitch is, is very original, and it seems to me to be disciplined in a way that a lot of these para paranormal shows are not disciplined. And you're right, it's a genre show, although in media in the United States, among film and TV critics, genre has become a code word for science fiction or fantasy yeah. or for the fantastic. In other words, critics here now, are, when they talk about a genre show, they're not talking about a police procedural they're not talking about a romance. They're not talking about a sitcom, all of which are genres. But genre, in quotes, seems to refer to anything that might be science fiction, might be fantasy, might be something like Stranger Things this past summer, which was really a mashup of 80s science fiction nostalgia done very affectionately and nicely. Um, but I, I, I think it's odd that, that in some ways the world of fantastic literature has claimed the word genre for itself. Maybe so. I mean, I, I will say with with Glitch, which is a, you know, it's a paranormal drama, there are six episodes, we're both about halfway through the series, I haven't seen it all mm -hmm. yet, uh, set in a small rural, you know, fictional rural Australian town uh, called Urana, uh, where one evening, late at night, eight people basically climb out of their graves, unaware of exactly how they've, how they've returned to life, restored to physical health as of about the time when they died, having died from as recently as three years ago or a hundred plus years ago in, in one case. Right. And it's fascinating and it's tight and it's focused and it's engaging. Um, and, you know, with six episodes easily for someone to see. And I guess from an American perspective, all of the actors are unfamiliar which actually is, yes. can be an adventure, you know, an advantage because you're not watching so and so do something. You're just following the story. So, you know, I, it's actually set in rural Victoria. I thought it was New South Wales. Okay. Uh, I was but, wondering, I was wondering what part of uh, Australia that was actually set in. It's, it's shot, it, it's, I'm just looking at a list of locations. It's actually shot in rural Victoria. So, uh, uh -huh. so, um, I have to say it looks like places I've been. Absolutely. Ah. You know, the big old pubs, the wide streets, the small towns, the whole yeah. thing. Absolutely. And the characters are very engaging. The acting's terrific. The, the script so far is smart. So heavily recommended. Glitch on Netflix. And with that, because I know you have to rush off in a minute and write show notes for this. Yes. Oh, I do, don't I? <laughs> you do now. <laughs> I think that's our ah. hour, Gary. We, we've waffled about politics and science fiction to no good end. We've waffled about uh, the recent election, really, to no meaningful end, uh, other than to sort of say that sort of we're a bit kind of shell shocked. And our apologies, our, our apologies to our listeners who may have lost patience with our talking about the local U.S. elections, but you would have thought we were completely clueless and 
insane not to have mentioned it. It's big. It's big. It's big. So, and with and that, next week we will. we'll do something else we haven't committed yet, have we? We haven't, but we will. We will. Okay. Well, until then, talk Gary. To you next week. I'll talk to you next week.